For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, so we've been in this interesting section of Romans. Uh, the flow of thought really from starting in Romans chapter 12 to the end of the book is getting really practical about how to live a life that brings glory to God, how to let God guide you uh, through um, the difficult choices that need to be made uh, living in a world that is designed to be hostile to the things of God. What does it look like to live your life for God? And we've talked about things like working within a governmental structure uh, that is not necessarily in agreement with God on morality. How do we work with human authority and how does that balance out with heavenly authority? Last week, we got into a really in-depth discussion of ethics and we saw that the Bible gives us this overarching principle that love is the highest ethic, the highest principle that if you boil down the question of who is God, and you can answer that with one word, God's answer to that question is love. And not only is that the summary of who God is, but that's the summary of all of Scripture. All the Bible can be summed up by love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we saw how we deal with morally gray areas living in a complicated world. We have the, the law of God, the word of God, to show us right and wrong, but sometimes we face very specific circumstances where we have to choose the lesser of two evils or the greater of two goods. And how do we weigh those things out? Well, the law of love, through what we were talking about last week as hierarchical ethics, gives us a, a biblical framework for working through those problems. We use the example of Rahab and a few other examples from Scripture to show that that's, that's what God guides us to do, is to work those things out with His Word according to what is loving by His definition of love, which the ultimate example of that is Jesus Christ dying for us on the cross. And then we work these things out through Scripture, prayer, the leading of His Spirit, and trying to figure out what is the most loving thing that we can do. He kind of summed that up. Love does, in Romans 13, 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. That same idea that we just expressed that's repeated over and over and over. Love is your guide to choose between the lesser of two evils. But it begs a question, an interesting question, that comes up next in Romans 14, which is where does the conscience play into this? How is my conscience, and how does God view the issue of conscience? We, most of us, have consciences, right? And it, we have a sense of moral bearing. Where does that come from, and how does that play into our sense of ethics? Certainly, a lot of our con conscience comes from our upbringing, the culture that we're raised in, the, um, the values that our parents emphasized, our experiences. Our conscience uh, is a, a product of a lot of those different things. And so how does our conscience play in? Well, we get to Romans 14, and we find this very interesting couple of verses where he says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. You say, vegetarians are weak in faith and meat eaters are strong. 
We knew that already, right? Where is this coming from, Paul? You know, like, it seems really bizarre. You're just like moving along and you're like, all of a sudden we're talking about weak in faith and strong in faith and meat eaters and vegetarians. Well, this is a great example of how understanding the original audience is key. Like the goal of good biblical interpretation is ultimately you're not asking the question, what does this mean to me? You're asking the question, what did the author mean when he said it? Okay? And so to do that, you have to understand that this is a letter, right? The book of Romans, written by a guy, Paul, almost 2,000 years ago, who's coming from a Jewish culture. He was raised in, um, in Jerusalem, in Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews, originally from Tarsus. And he's writing a letter to a bunch of people who have just become Christians in Rome. And so when he says these things, he's speaking under the assumption that they understand things about their culture that we might not understand. We have to go and do some good historical background in order to understand what they're talking about. Because to us, this sounds like it has to do with cruelty to animals and saturated fats, right? Heart disease. Is that, that's why you become a vegetarian is because of those things. Well, they didn't know about any of that. Well, they knew about cruelty to animals. They just didn't care in the ancient world. They didn't have... So our culture looks at eating meat or being a vegetarian that way through that lens. But it meant something completely different to the audience he was speaking to. The people of Rome who are the recipients of this letter have two primary backgrounds that they're coming from. Two different cultures that they're, um, that they're based in. One is Roman paganism. Now, the Roman religion, the, this, this was a religion of state. You, there was emperor worship, but it was also highly synchristic, meaning that to be a Roman in this time was about incorporating as many other religions and gods because they viewed it like you know, audience participation, you know, they, they wanted as many people on their side as they could possibly get. As many gods, the more gods you have in your pocket, the more likely you are to succeed. And it was part of the Roman Empire's strategy and ruling. They had such a vast empire where the fastest mode of transportation was a horse. And so how are you going to keep control over thousands of miles of territory, well, what you do is, rather than go in and impose your culture on another culture, you invite their culture to participate, and you take their religion and you add it to your religion. And Rome was a vast empire, so they had their traditional religions, but they were incorporating uh, mystery religions from Egypt, you know, the cult of Isis, and they would look and they would say, okay, we're going to bring your gods. And they would literally conquer you, capture the idol that your people worshipped, and bring it to Rome so that all of Rome could worship there. And they would build a temple there. So they were into incorporating and including as many religious perspectives as possible. And it didn't matter if they contradicted each other. The gods were mysterious. And all you cared about was being blessed. So get all the gods on your side. And so a big part of Roman paganism was meat that had been sacrificed to idols. In fact, uh, from many sources, the, the primary source, each temple that had um, meat sacrifice associated with it 
opened a butchery in the temple because that was how big part of how they made money. People came to worship and they would bring sacrifices and they would burn a portion of it and then they would have a big portion left over. What do they do? Well, they sell it. And so virtually every source of meat in the city of Rome, it was highly likely that it had been meat used as a form of pagan worship. And that's important that we understand that because we also have a second distinct background in Rome, which were there were many Jewish people who were living in Rome who were coming to believe in Christ. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they're not coming from a Roman paganism background. They're coming from a Judaism background. And in Judaism, one of the primary things about Judaism is it is about strict monotheism. And so for a Jew to eat meat that had been sacrificed to a pagan god was an abomination. They had been raised from the very beginning to avoid, it wasn't that all meat was bad in their thinking, but it was that you didn't know where meat came from if you lived in Rome. And so the book of Daniel describes that when they were captives in Babylon, they decided we would just eat vegetables because we know that people aren't sacrificing vegetables to any foreign gods. And God blessed that decision because they decided to stand out in that way. So to become a vegetarian in this context is to avoid meat sacrificed to idols. And to be a meat eater in this context is to not care that the meat was sacrificed to idols and eat anyway. Plus, the Jews had the kosher food laws, which played another role, was another layer on having to be very careful about what they ate. So these two people from these different backgrounds are coming together in one church, the body of Christ. And he's saying within that context, there's what he calls the strong, and that's from both backgrounds, whether Jewish or Roman background. The strong are the ones who know there are no other gods. All that pagan worship and all that stuff is meaningless. It doesn't affect me. I don't care where the meat comes from. And I know that the Old Testament dietary laws are no longer necessary because God gave Peter a vision to that effect. And so they're like, we're free to eat meat. And we don't care and it doesn't matter, and we're not worshiping fake pagan gods that don't exist. We're just eating meat. And he calls those the strong. Peter, in Acts 10, 14, had this vision where it said, by he, the Lord showed him all these different foods, and some of them were unclean. And the Lord told him to eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Peter was a Jewish man raised in a Jewish family. He had been obeying kosher laws his whole life. And he has a vision from the Lord of a blanket coming down from the sky and God saying, it's time for some pork, Peter. And Peter says, no. I mean, that's how deeply ingrained these things are. God gives him a vision and speaks from the sky and he's like, my mom would be so mad at me. If I ate that unclean food, and God's like, no, seriously, it's okay. Again, the voice comes a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. Those laws, those rules were there for a reason to teach people something, but those laws have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And as we move into the new covenant, those laws are not necessary as a teaching tool anymore. So 
it is true that you can eat whatever meat you want and the kosher laws don't apply and we're not worshiping pagan gods, we're just eating meat. But then you have the weak, what he calls the weak. And the weak can't get past uh, the traditions of their upbringing, right? The food that they're used to, the smells in their house, their identity, their culture, you know, the way they were raised, you know, mom's, all of mom's recipes are vegetarian recipes because we were Jewish people living in Rome where there was nothing but meat sacrificed to idols and we were obeying kosher law. And so the history of where they come from makes it very difficult for them to want to eat meat. They're bothered in their conscience. They understand intellectually God has said this is okay, but I just don't feel right about doing that. I don't feel right about going there. That's not how I was raised. So they refrain from eating any meat for conscience sake. And so these two people, you can imagine, like one of the most social things you can do today is have a meal with somebody and so imagine you have, you know, we're a body of Christ here. And imagine, you know, half of us don't eat meat, we're vegetarian, and half of us love barbecue. Well, how do we have a potluck? Like, what does that look like? You know, are we going to be offending one another and grossing one another out and judging one another? And are we going to have to have a vegetarian CT and a meat-eating CT? You know, like, how do we... How do we how far do you let those things go in terms of dividing you? It's a, it's a potentially serious division that could happen in the church of Rome that has deeply rooted things in terms of how we are raised and our culture. So that's what he's talking about. Now that we understand that, let's look. He says the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Don't turn against each other on the basis of this issue. It's not worth fighting over. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord, is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. And now it gets very interesting because he is broadening the category, not just to dietary laws, but to festival calendars, which was another big thing in the Jewish background, in the Jewish uh, upbringing, would be all the different Sabbaths and all the different festivals of booths and trumpets and the Day of Atonement and this entire calendar of uh, obediently following after what the Old Testament said it meant to be Jewish and remembering the things like the Passover. And Paul is broadening it out even further and saying, whether you eat meat sacrificed to idols whether you feel like it's really important, for them it would be the Sabbath was Saturday in, in Judaism, is still today. Is it really important that you go to church every Saturday? Is that a holy day? Must all those 
feasts and festivals still be celebrated? He puts it all into the same category and says, if it's really important to you, the God that we serve, the God that we follow is the God of the Old Testament and the New. And so you can observe those things and it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian and that we should divide from one another. Or you cannot observe those things and it doesn't mean you're not a Christian and that we should divide from one another. Because both give thanks to God and he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Don't turn against one another over these unimportant things. What he's saying is, is this is a non-moral issue. If you eat the meat, you're not in the wrong. If you refrain from the meat, you're not in the wrong. If you observe the calendars, you're not in the wrong. If you don't observe the calendar, as long as what you do, you do it for the Lord and you do it for conscience sake, these are not important questions. It's an issue of conscience. Look at what he says in verse 6. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord. He who gives thanks to God and he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. You see, the overarching issue, the, the issue that's important is, is, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And you can choose whether you follow those laws or don't follow those laws, whether you follow those calendars or don't follow those calendars, you have freedom in Christ to choose those things. But don't let your differences in those areas divide you and tear you apart. Well, we've done a fantastic job of that, haven't we? I mean, you look at, you know, uh, these are things that wars have been fought over. People die and kill each other over these things, historically speaking completely disobedient to the spirit of what God wants for his people. He says both are operating from faith. And that for, therefore, it's not worth creating a division in the community. We ought to be the kind of people that can have both traditions firmly held and love each other and be in unity with each other. God's ways, God's kindness should be powerful enough within our community that we can overcome these kinds of differences without having to change. He says in verse 11, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. On this kind of non-moral issue, go before the Lord and do what your conscience says. That's what he's saying. Now, it's interesting, and we start to divide it down a little bit further, and it's not an issue of personal preference, okay? It may be a non-moral issue, and there's not necessarily a right or wrong in the sense of one person is sinning and the other is not, 
<clears throat> but it's not just an issue of preference. And what I mean is, is there are non-moral issues of preference like chocolate or vanilla, right? That's just the choice that you make, you know, there's not a right answer to which one is better or which one is the worst. It's an issue of personal preference. This is not like that. There is truth here, right? And he's clear. There is a correct answer. The correct answer is you are free to do this. He says it right here in verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So it's not chocolate or vanilla. It's just an issue of preference. It is, no, the truth here is we are free. That's the issue. But to him who thinks anything be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Now this is something that, you know, as you read through your Bible and you read through this passage, if you don't have the whole background of idol worship and meat sacrifice idols, you're already deeply confused. Why, why are we talking about vegetarians and meat eaters, right? And you get to this point and you're going to go, that looks like moral relativism, doesn't it? It looks like what's, what's being said here is, is, if it's, is if you think it's wrong, then it is wrong. And if you think it's right, then it is right. And the truth then is dependent upon your conscience. And so we get there, and the Bible clearly is not a morally relativistic doc, doc, document, right? God says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Bible believes in universal truth, that there are truths that are true for everybody, regardless of whether they believe it, whether they accept it. There are things that are true. Moral relativism says right and wrong are rooted in each individual's perception. Do I think this is right? Then it is right for me. Do I think this is wrong? Then it is wrong for me. And it seems like he just made that claim regarding this meat sacrifice to idols thing. So as if it's wrong in my conscience, it's wrong for me, is that moral relativism? And the answer is, no, that is not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is, is that the conscience matters in these non-moral decisions. And don't violate your conscience because God may have individual moral imperatives, specific things, wisdom for you that he speaks to you about in your conscience that don't necessarily apply to everybody, but they apply to you in your situation. And the truth doesn't change. God has declared all things clean. That's the universal truth. Freedom has been given to all on these issues. That's the universal truth. All followers of Jesus Christ are free to not follow calendars and not follow dietary laws. But not all are required to partake of that freedom. Your freedom includes choosing non-freedom. That's what he's saying. And don't turn against one another and judge one another on this basis. Don't let these kinds of issues divide you. So the strong are not to hold the weak in contempt, which is kind of funny. I think it's hilarious. 
you know, why call him strong and weak as you're trying to tell them don't judge one another, right? I mean, I went and I looked into the Greek, like, does strong mean strong here and weak? And, yep, it does. Uh, it seems like you might want to use a different, you know, well, I'm the weak one, but, you know, I'm not, I don't feel judged. <laughs> And the weak should not demand the strong give up their freedom. If you choose not to use your freedom, you are free to do so, but don't judge and demand that others live like you live. Verse 16, therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He's like, let's not spend any more time talking about food and drink. Let's spend our time talking about what matters. What's really important. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have as your own conviction before God, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves." But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. It's very interesting, this way that the conscience plays into this whole issue of what is moral, what is ethical. And what he's saying is, is a non-moral issue like this can become moral. When you look at this issue, it's a non-moral issue. There's a truth, but it's not wrong to pick one side or the other, but if we are ungodly about it and we judge one another, that is a moral issue. So when you sit there and you're like, oh, look at that disgusting meat eater over there. That was probably sacrificed, you know, to a filthy pagan god. You know, how can they call, how can they really, I mean, I get it. Jesus died for them, but they're not really spiritual because look at how they eat. You're in sin. That's what he's saying. You've created a moral issue at that point. At the same time, you look at the vegetarian and you say, oh, they're so weak and oh, they have their rules and they won't eat. Oh, there's no, you know. How spiritual is that? You're in sin because you've begun to judge your brother and you've made food a division among the family of God. When we demand others be limited by our conscience, now we've created a moral issue. You're free in Christ to do these things, and I demand that you stop. I am sinning against you, according to the Scriptures. It also becomes a moral issue if we violate our conscience on an issue that we believe God has spoken to us as an individual. There might be certain reasons that God says to you, you know what? There's some things that you should avoid because of your past, because of your history, because of choices that you've made. There might be some choices for you that are wrong, that are okay for other people. And God will speak to you on those things, and you should listen to him. 
And we should not judge people who put those limitations on themselves for those reasons. Nor should we decide that if I'm going to be limited this way, everyone else has to be limited in the same way. And it becomes a moral issue if we stumble one another. You're the weak, and you're not going to eat meat, but you love meat, right? And I know that, and I think it's hilarious that you're not going to eat meat. And so I show up at your house with a big rack of spare ribs, and I'm just, hey, man, how's it going? You know, I'm tempting you to violate your conscience, and that is not cool. That is not okay. I should respect that you have chosen a certain way and be careful and be sensitive because why? Because the rule of love. I'm willing to sacrifice my freedom in your presence, not because I have to, but because I want to. So, okay, thanks, Ryan. Now, if we ever see meat sacrificed to idols, we'll know exactly what to do. This is very helpful. Thank you. Right? It's like, they're not a big issue in our culture. Why don't we just skip over this and get on, you know, to Romans 15? Why are we taking all this time to explain all of this? Because it's actually super pertinent. It's super helpful because it shows us how the conscience works in terms of these morally gray areas. The modern application gets pretty interesting. Let's take drinking alcohol as an example. There are lots of Christians out there who were raised in very strict Christian homes in a sort of a a Puritan tradition. And they like to stay away from alcohol no matter what. And that is almost um, uniquely an American Christianity feature, by the way. But there are many, many people who are true followers of Jesus Christ, who have been raised to believe that if you have alcohol in your home, you go to a bar, you drink, that that is, you know, you're just, you're just doing something that's non-Christian when you do that. They believe it's a sin for a Christian to take a drink. Their argument goes something like this. It only leads to bad things. Uh, it's going to have the a danger of misrepresenting who you are to people. Really spiritual people just won't even go near it. Why even bother with it at all? And, you know, people will get the wrong idea about you and what it means to be a Christian if you go into a bar. And it's not just that they believe this, but they were raised this way. This is a part of their cultural identity as a people. And it's very similar, I think, to this issue of meat sacrifice to idols. There's a right answer to that question, right? Jesus turned water into wine to improve a party. Okay? That happened. God turned water into wine because they ran out. How do you look at that and say, drinking is evil? Paul tells Timothy, you know, when your stomach is upset, you should take a little wine. And they say, well, um, wine is a fine medicine, right? But uh, you should never drink it for pleasure. Psalm 104.14, the Lord makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bring forth food from the earth, and he makes wine that gladdens the hearts of men. 
oil to make his face shine and bread that sustains his heart. Uh, why drink wine? Also, because it gladdens the heart of man. That's one of the reasons that wine is good. The, of the two rituals were prescribed in the New Testament, baptism and communion, one of them assumes there's a hearty supply of wine around. It's supposed to be a meal, right? And take the bread, because every meal in the ancient world had two things, bread and wine. So if drinking wine is evil, and it should never be done, or alcohol as a whole, then why do we find no sign of that in the New Testament? In fact, what we find is the opposite, that that's a social thing that to do together brings merriment. There's a truth to this issue. Part of that truth, though, is that getting drunk is sin. That the scriptures are clear on Ephesians 5.18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's verse after verse after verse about being sober, being clear-headed, right? And so alcohol is permissible according to scripture. Drunkenness is not permissible. And then we get into the whole thing of the pharisaical, well, how far do I go? And is it the legal definition, a point zero eight, whatever, right? What is it that makes me drunk? your conscience will play a big role in determining that, and the people around you will be quite helpful as well. <laughs> right? That, but you see how this works in a very similar way. Drunkenness is a moral issue. It is never okay. But whether you drink or don't drink is an issue of conscience. Were you raised in a place, in a family, in a time where drinking is just wrong and evil and, you know, you've tried it and you're like, I know I'm free to do it, but I just choose not to. Cool. And no one should ever look at you and be like, what is wrong with you, you fundy? You know, you, you fool, you uptight stick in the mud. That should never happen in the body of Christ. Or what are we doing? We're looking at the person who doesn't eat meat, and we're dividing with them. In the same way, we must never look at someone who is free to drink but doesn't get drunk and look at them and say, second-class citizen. You are a questionable character. And I know what's in your liquor cabinet, and I'm offended, right? That's not okay either. That's dividing. Furthermore, there may be people in our midst with alcoholism in their background, who can't be around alcohol. And we should sacrifice our freedom rather than stumble our brother and not drink around those people. And I've seen this happen in our church before. There are home churches where they have wine or beer or stuff after, and, you know, it becomes a big part of their identity. Like, that's a big thing that we do. And you're like, okay, I mean, it's fine that it's there, but when someone is coming out and they're also going to AA meetings and you break out the cooler... Is, that, is the law of love in operation there? Or do we sacrifice our freedom willingly in order to make one person more comfortable in the community of God? Not because we have to, but because we choose to. We don't want to stumble people. 
And so we are given the broad freedom to work these things out in individual situations. The instructions are don't judge people either way. Don't be divided over it. Focus on what's important. That's what's important. So we look at the danger of these morally gray areas and we decide to take a personal conviction and when we impose it on other people, now we have made it a moral issue. We've gone beyond what is written. We are arguing things. And the problem with arguing things that the Bible doesn't argue is it means that you're misrepresenting God. We have a whole culture of people out there that think playing cards and dancing and drinking alcohol is evil to God. That he looks down at that and, and frowns. And it's colored their perception of who he is and what he's like. And it's a misrepresentation of who he is. Because people have taken their moral conscience and extended it beyond what is written and created a false picture of God. There's lots of other issues we could spend time thinking about. What should I do for a living? Is that a moral issue? Is that a gray issue? What should my career be? Should I change careers? I mean, there are moral decisions that could be made here. If you're aspiring to be a pole dancer, uh, the word of the Lord would have words for you on that. That's not a career that God wants for you. If you're doing that, you should stop. But beyond things like that, you know, maybe, I mean, you get tempted, like, I think maybe politicians and lawyers should be thrown in there, but <laughs> I would be going beyond what is written. That's just a joke. <laughs> Everyone's going to come out of here like, Ryan says, if you're a lawyer, you're in sin. <laughs> These are mostly non-moral issues, but it is a question of stewardship of our gifts, what can you do? What is best for you? And what kind of life will lead to you being available for the things that matter to God and for the spiritual things in your life? Some of you know, like, we have an issue in our church. Uh, student ministries sometimes comes under fire under this issue because parents are like, my kid is being told, you know, not to be a doctor. That's evil that they should, you know, take this blue-collar job and they're not going to make a lot of money and they, they feel like, you know, there's a big controversy over this. And I want to take a moment to explain to you the principles as somebody who was in student ministries for many years. What we do is we look at the capacity of the individual to help guide them in these areas. I'll give you a great example. Over there is Doug Ferguson. He was my roommate in college. We lived together for, I don't know, five years and uh, went to school together. And we had the same ministry, the same. We went to home church, CT, cell group for years. We discipled people. We took our classes. We did all the same things ministry-wise. I was a humanities major getting a history degree. He is a dentist. And he did all the same ministry things and worked a part-time job bagging groceries at Kroger. I did all the same ministry things and a part-time job working at U-Haul. 
And he was able to do so much more academically than I was because his chassis is different than mine. He should have been a dentist because he, his ability to go through all those biochem classes and all those labs and all those things that he had to do in order to get that degree, he was able to do all of that and be fully engaged in ministry. And so that made sense for him. I was not. I didn't even try. I'm just happy I got a history degree. And that my history degree was way easier than all those classes that he had to go through. And that's not a commentary on his intelligence or mine. Uh, I mean, it could be. (laughs) It has a lot more to do with the way that he organizes his life, the way that he spends his time. He was, especially then, a far more disciplined person. He had a chassis that could take all of that. So it made sense for him to do that kind of thing because he now enjoys the freedom of being able to do a lot of the Lord's work because he doesn't have to work the same schedule that a lot of other people make. But he didn't have to sacrifice ministry at the time. I would have had to have sacrificed a lot of ministry at the time. And so a good way to go about this is to look at these things and say, what is your capacity? What can you do? Don't let your career aspirations weigh too heavily on what your availability for ministry is right now, but that's going to look different to different people. And guess what? Parents are not very objective on this issue. They all think their kids can, can uh, you know, get PhDs and work part-time jobs, and be fully available for ministry. And very, very few people can do that. Those who can, should. Those who can't, should find other ways. And that's a stewardship based on an individual situation using all the ethics that we're talking about here. Matthew 6, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given unto you. Consider your capacity, get some wisdom and pursue the best course for a great career and a great life of ministry and do not sacrifice unnecessarily one for the other. Will my career hinder my investment in my family and my spiritual relationships even in the short term, meaning for the next two or three years? That's an important issue that should be weighed heavily on the principles of what God says. So if somebody goes for a PhD, don't judge them. Love them. Give them feedback about can they do it? What do you think? And then let them choose in their conscience the way they go. But plead with them to be wise. And if someone is being lazy, and not doing enough, and just saying, well, all I care about spiritual stuff. I don't even want a job, you know. I'll just, you know, talk to them and show them why it's important that we as believers work hard at all that we do and work out these things with the word of the Lord, with prayer, with the principles of love, the witness and counsel of the body of Christ and your conscience. Same thing. How much should I spend on my house? Same kind of thing. 
Stewardship of resources. What is wise? What is good? What someone should spend on their house and what another person should spend on their house might be pretty different given their circumstances, given their goals. We have principles of stewardship that we should follow. But what about things like, should I move into a neighborhood where I will be very available to reach out to people in my neighborhood? That would be a very important decision-making factor for a Christian thinking about buying a house. Maybe more important than the amount of time it takes you to commute to work. Maybe more important than that. Am I accessible to others? Am I living near people in my home group so that it's easy for us to get together and spend time together? That might be a little bit more important than are the property values on the rise in this area. We should think through those things, pray through those things, use wisdom and then our conscience before the Lord and set a good example for each other. Will my spouse have to work if we buy this house? That's something you might want to think about. So many couples don't even think about that. They have double income, no kids. They're not planning on having kids. They're not thinking about it. They're like, yeah, we can afford this house. That's a great financial responsibility. We just made a huge win. And then all of a sudden, they get pregnant, and they're like, oh, my gosh, if one of us stops working, we can't afford this house. What do we do? You think about it, you get counsel, and you pray about it before you buy the house. If you can, and if you can't, maybe you sell the house if you have to. What does your conscience say? How consumed with extracurricular activities should my kids be? That's another big one, right? Well, maintain a healthy spiritual perspective. Think about what matters. Are they able to be engaged, fully engaged in their spiritual health? Are they able to live out the one another passages given the schedule that they have? Or do you have them so wrapped up in uh, their AP classes, so wrapped up in getting a scholarship so that they don't have the burden of loans and so that you can buy a boat and doing so many activities to pad their resume so much that they have no time to grow and engage spiritually with their friends. You will regret that as a parent if you are a partied to the sickness in our culture of driving our kids insane. How much? How far? What does your conscience say? What does the Bible say? What does wise counsel of your friends say? Don't stumble your kids they're like, I really want to be involved in fellowship. And you're like, yeah, but you need to be in at least three sports teams or you'll never get into Harvard. <laughs> Your kid wants the better thing, the spiritual thing. My plan is an empty nester in my retirement years. Are you using your freedom and your resources sacrificially? As my time becomes more available, am I putting it into God's hands? Or do I have my sights set on the golf course? Is golfing evil? No. Is retirement evil? No. Use your conscience and scripture and prayer and get counsel and make wise decisions. Finish strong and make your last years your best years for the Lord. God's moral will expressed in scripture. That's what we've been talking about for the last two weeks. And we find a very good guide 
for a lot of black and white issues. It's very clear what we should do. The law of love covers so many more things as we entertain and as we look at those gray issues. The law of love guides us through there and your counsel from one another, from the community of God, prayer, and your conscience. <clears throat> do you see how marvelously God has provided for us to work our way through the difficulties of this world? He finishes in 22, the faith whom which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. What I'm saying here is beware of hardening your heart. Beware of hardening your conscience. You may be, you, we're so good at lying to ourselves. You may be hardening your heart. Think about these things. You, you may be hardening your heart if you don't want anyone to know about what you're doing. You should be very suspicious of everything that you do when you have that twinge of shame and hope nobody finds out. That means that you know what you're doing is wrong. You're just hoping you don't get caught. You're violating, you're taking your conscience and you're punching it in the face and saying, shut up and don't tell. When you have an inordinate emotional response to people's questions and criticisms about what you're doing, it's likely that you're hardening your heart. You know, you come home and, you know, your spouse is like, uh, is that a new television in the basement? And you're like, no. I work hard. I deserve a break, you know. And you have that fire, you know. It's like, you know, you just were evil. What you did was wrong. And you've just decided I'm going to get loud about it and hopefully get what I want, just like a little child would. Hardening your heart, right? When you make up terrible justifications for what you know is wrong, right? The silliest things that as you hear them come out of your mouth, you're like, if they buy this, they deserve to be deceived, right? <laughs> That's a good sign that you're hardening your heart. When you push people away who might tell you the truth, you find that you can't get close to people because as they look into your real life, they start to see who you really are and you don't want to change. You're hardening your heart. Psalm 95, 7, 8, and 8 says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't go turning away from God speaking to you about these different issues. Bring them into the light and use these different wonderful faculties that God has given us for figuring out which way is best. That's what we've got from Romans 14. God, um, it's so cool how you have all these directions for us and all these different things play together. The law of love, scripture, prayer, the Holy Spirit guiding us within us, our conscience, the way that you speak to us, the counsel from other Christians, all of those things are each and every one of them an incredible resource, and you provide it all. But we also realize, God, that we have to be willing. We have to listen, and we have to open our hearts to those things. And the heart of man is dark and deceitful. And we can very easily lie to ourselves, lie to you, 
and, and not make use of those things and then be angry and shake our fist at you when we feel like we don't have the answers we want. We just pray, God, for people that are struggling in conscience. Pray for the people here that know that you are heavy on their heart about different issues, about things that they've got going on right now where they could really use some counsel and really use some input. We pray that we can take time to use some of that uh, time this morning to get some freedom and some wisdom on those things. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.